Introducing the SND Podcast channel, your one stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We can be reached on all social media such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, a beauty production presents... The most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, episode 32. I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And we are back from Thanksgiving break. Uh, how was your holiday, Jose? Very full, Nick. Very, very, very full. Still have my uh, pants with more elastic on it. It's the sweatpants week. Yeah, basically. No buttons yet. No buttons. <laughs> uh, well, a lot happened in the NFL this week. Uh, we've got the mess in Green Bay to figure out, but I want to start with Thursday night football. We had the Cowboys versus the Saints. The Cowboys going into that game with a three-game winning streak. The Saints going in with a 10-game winning streak. And so much more pressure on the Cowboys in this game, and the Cowboys pulling out the win, thirteen to ten, leading ten to nothing at half. So, Jose, we'll start with this. What's the biggest takeaway from the game that you had? Uh, well, to me, it's the you know the Cowboys stepping up in the moment. I mean, you just said it yourself. The Saints were on a ten-game winning streak. That could be very hard to to overcome when you're on your way into a game, right? When you're trying to hype yourself up. And when you're trying to game plan, the Saints are so dynamic. They have so many different weapons. They can beat you with the run game. They can beat you with the pass game. Uh, their offensive line is one of the best in footballs. So overall, this is going to be a tough task for the Cowboys, who really needed to win, right? Because with Washington being down, you kind of get the feeling that Philly will win on Monday night. Um, but you can't assume that, right, if you're the Cowboys. Um, Dallas kind of controls their own destiny in their hands here if they just keep on winning. No one's going to be able to catch them. Um, so to me, my biggest takeaway is just the Cowboys stepping up. And you know, how many times have we seen in a big moment, whoever the Cowboys are, whoever the QB is, whether it was Romo in the past or or Dak now, just fold under pressure and the team fold in general too. I think the defense did a really good job against the Saints. Um, anytime you can contain the Saints for, what, 10 points, um, I think you, you've had a pretty successful night against New Orleans. Um, but yeah, I think my biggest takeaway was that the Cowboys showed up, it was a big game for them, and they stepped up too. What really stood out to me is, this was a Cowboys game all throughout the entire game. There there was no, no moments of like, yes, 13-0 at half, game ends 13-10, so the second half you could say was New Orleans, but not really. New Orleans scores the touchdown because of a running into a kicker on the punt. And it sets them up to have another drive closer to the end zone. And a helmet, uh, a face mask penalty, another 15 yards. A lot of foolish penalties we saw by Dallas in that second half. That was one of the big reasons why New Orleans was able to get the offense going. But this Dallas defense was so impressive throughout the entire game. And the Cowboys... They stuck to their game plan the entire way. Run the football. Uh, run the football has been their game plan every single game. Run it on first down. 
give it to Elliott, try and make it a short third down. This Cowboys offense, yes, they scored 13 points. Dak Prescott had a couple fumbles. But overall, I mean, they did give the Saints a chance to come back. But I love this offense of how they played. Time possession, incredible. 36 minutes, they really dominated that game throughout the full. Most of the first half, they had the entire ball. The run game was perfect. They fumbled a couple times, but 7 of 14 on third down conversions. That, to me, is impressive. Because if the Cowboys want to win games, want to play this style, they have to convert on third down. They have to continue their drives. They necessarily don't have to score touchdowns. They proved that last night. They don't need to always go out there and put up 30 points in this game. It wasn't going to be a shootout. But they have to convert on third down. They have to convert on that third and three, that third and four, that third and two. Because if they continue to make the drives, the defense spends less time on the field, puts more pressure on that opposing offense, and that Dallas defense. I mean, Jose, I mean, is this the most underrated defense in football, or have they just claimed themselves one of the better defenses at this point? No, I think it's one of the most underrated ones in football. I mean, I feel like that's always a quality of Dallas that always gets forgotten about. You know, we always talk about how good Zeke is, or how good the offensive line is, or how Dak is going to do. Or even when Des Bryant was there, you know, the receiving core. We never really talk about the defense that's usually led by Sean Lee, um, the young linebacker that they picked up in the draft last year, LVE. Um, he's doing fantastic as a rookie. I feel like he's really flown under the radar. Like, I looked up the other day how many tackles he has. And it was like this outrageous amount. And I just, you know, these are guys, these guys are just flying under the radar. Um, and that's good in a way. I mean, I don't know if you want your defense to be really flashy and known. I think Dallas is in a good spot where a lot of people are going to sleep on them, maybe slack off against them, and they can really take advantage of that. And one of the other things, like you mentioned about the Eagles, uh, it, the Eagles play Washington on Monday night. Uh, we'll assume the Eagles win, just make it simple. If the Redskins win, they're still tied with Dallas at 7-5. and five. But it's also very tough to see Washington you know, having a real, real chance in this division without, what, a starting quarterback? Uh, Colt McCoy or Mark Sanchez, uh, still not signing Colin Kaepernick. Uh, it doesn't give Washington a great chance to go, and then AP seems like he's falling off a bit. So I think we both are assuming the Eagles are going to win this game, which will put both Washington and Philadelphia at sits and sits. So this was even a more important win than like most people can imagine because you're looking at a three-way tie at sits and sits. I think a lot of people thought the Saints are just going to come in, roll, run over Dallas in this game. And I think one of the big things that we're not talking about also is like it was Thursday Night Football and normally we give a pass on teams for Thursday Night Football, but both of these teams played on Thanksgiving. So they both had a week off for this game. This was like a regular Sunday game for them, and only one team truly came into this game showing up, and that was the Dallas Cowboys. And they certainly looked impressive. 7-5, um, they're now the division leader by a full game, assuming the Eagles win. Are the Cowboys a true playoff threat? So my answer is no. Only because, like you said, both of these teams had a week to prepare. But who needed this game more? It's obviously the Cowboys, right? If the Saints lose, they're still going to win their division. 
So I think the Cowboys just played with a little bit more importance. Um, you know, if the Cowboys do happen to win the East, which I do think they will, and if they make the playoffs, I could see them getting past the first round just fine. But can you really see the Cowboys doing this again to the Saints? Or can you see the Cowboys doing this to the Rams? I don't see it. Um, especially when you're facing a better defense than the Rams if they had to face the Rams. Um, but right now, I think you give credit to the Cowboys. They're playing really well. They've played really well to battle back and win the, if, and to eventually win the division if they do. Um, but in terms of that being a playoff threat, I don't see it. I could definitely see them getting out of the first round, um, beating any of the wildcard teams they face. Uh, but a potential matchup against the Rams, to me, is very difficult. And I think a rematch against the Saints won't favor them either. Um, I do think it was an off week for the Saints. I don't think this was a, a legit concern. Um, I think the Cowboys ne- just needed to win more, and they stepped up and won the game. Uh, again, if the Cowboys don't win yesterday, you know it hurts their chances of getting into the playoffs. So if the Saints lose, it doesn't really matter, right? They're going to make the playoffs anyways. They're going to be the number two seed. Um, so I think if this was the playoffs, you'll see the Saints play with a little bit more intensity. And again, I think it's very hard to only hold the Saints to 10 points um, you know, twice when so- you face them, let alone one time. Um, so I don't know. I don't think the Cowboys are a playoff threat uh, when it comes to outside of the first round. So I'm going to take the opposite approach here. Because if they play like this, and I do believe the Cowboys can play like this, they were the team I figured were going to win the division this season. It was just a matter of how long before they actually started winning. And, uh, I mean, Jason Garrett might still have a job after this, which is kind of annoying. But you look at it and, and we love the Rams' offense. We love the Saints' offense. Their defenses do well, but it's mainly their offenses. Dallas plays a different game than most of these other teams. Dallas, when they have their starting quarterback playing in their game, they have one of the highest winning percentages that go to equal the Patriots when Tom Brady is on the field. And this is still back since like 2015, and it didn't even include the year where... Uh, Dak Prescott came as the starter because Tony Ronomo was the original starter of the team. That's how high this winning percentage has been for them. I'm all in favor of buying into Dallas as a true playoff team. If they play this style of football, hold the time possession because that offense of theirs is pretty much like a defense. Their front seven is statistically equal to the Minnesota Vikings defense. Like We are... I don't think we really give Dallas enough credit because of the fact that they're Dallas and because of the fact that when they get to the playoffs, uh, it's it's Dallas. They're not going to win. They're, they're not a good enough team. No, I'm buying into Dallas right now, and it should be – we should buy into Dallas. The way they played against the New Orleans Saints, they showed the Saints' floors. The Saints, I, they have many floors. We'll jump into that in a moment, but – so do the Rams. They're, they're playing shootout football a few games. They're putting in up high-scoring games. What does that mean? It means they're allowing yards. And a team like Dallas that throws a great percentage, I'm not expecting Dak to throw 17 straight completions in a row, but what I am expecting Dak to do is get those short first downs. What I am expecting Elliott to do is run the ball successfully in games against the teams like the Rams, against the teams like the Saints, 
A little bit tougher if you're playing the Bears, but still, it's a little bit of a weaker offense then. You're going to get the yardage against these teams. You're going to get the first downs. You're going to control time of possession. And your defense is good enough to hold offenses to not scoring, to hold offenses to field goals, to hold offenses to punting the ball where their only offensive drive of a touchdown happened because of penalties. I'm sold on this Dallas Cowboys team. I'm not saying they're a Super Bowl team, but they are certainly a playoff threat, and every team in the league should be taking them serious because their game plan fits perfect for the NFL style that is today. And the NFL style today is offense, getting first down, scoring. The Cowboys just change it a little bit of time of possession and holding the ball and making really, really long drives having five, seven-minute drives, and they had that consistently against the New Orleans Saints. If they do that in the playoffs against, I don't care if it's the Rams or the Saints, they're going to win the football game time in and time again because they're going to be the better team because they're going to be consistently playing on the field. So I, I truly believe Dallas is a playoff contender when they hold the time possession the way they did and if they put that as their style. For the Saints, though, on the flip side, obviously a 10-game winning streak. Like you said, they're 10-2. and two. They're most likely running away with this division as Carolina is right now on the outside looking in for just the wild card. So, yes, New Orleans is fine in that factor. But, Jose, let me ask you this. After watching that game, do you have any concerns for the Saints? Or was this just like an off night for them? Well, I always have concerns for the Saints, only because, again, this is just a high-power offense, um, and sometimes they just don't show up. Uh, you know, we've seen it in the playoffs before, where sometimes this defense breaks down, but I really, truly believe that this was just a really, really off night. Um, again, there's no way the Saints are going to be held to 10 points again for the rest of the season, in my opinion, um, playoffs or regular season. Uh, and again, it was just a really weird night. I think it's one of those nights where you tip your cap to, to Dallas's defense. They played extremely well. But at the end of the day, you still have Alvin Kamara in your backfield. At the end of the day, you still have Drew Brees throwing crazy amount of touchdowns. This team is too dynamic to be held to 10 points again for the rest of the year. Again, regular season or postseason. I'm really not concerned. The Cowboys needed this win more. Therefore, they stepped up. Um, I, I think... The Saints will use this loss as motivation, though, and say, hey, we slacked off. We let someone else that really wanted to win beat us. If this was the playoffs, we would be being sent home right now because we took it easy on an opponent. Um, again, I have serious concern sometimes about the Saints' defense. But overall, I think this just really was just an off night for the Saints. So obviously, I think there's always the same concern when it comes to New Orleans. Can they win on the road? Uh, they've had one dominating win on the road. That was against Cincinnati. Other than that, they lost 13-10 to 10 to Dallas. They beat Minnesota by 10. But when you really look at that game, they had a lot of straight possession storing, a lot of field goals, and interception return for a touchdown. So, yes, they, they won by 10 in that game. But a lot went their way, fumbles, it, turnovers. So it helped out New Orleans. They beat Baltimore by one. They, uh, the Giants were technically always in the game that they played against New York in New York. They lost by 15, but 
no, it was a one possession game pretty much the entire game. Uh, only when it got to the very end in the fourth quarter did it become out of reach for the Giants. Atlanta went to overtime. Atlanta was winning when you got down to the final five minutes of that football game. So there are always those obvious points where it's like New Orleans, if there was a team that truly needed home uh, field advantage for that one seed over teams like the Rams, that's one that stands out to me. But, you know, we looked at New Orleans and, yes, they they had a 10-game winning streak. There's not much to shoot at them for, but... One of the things I looked at is I don't really love this two running back system, Mark Ingram and Tamar. Uh, Ingram is a very good running back on most teams. He's a starter uh, on some teams where it's like you have that number one star running back. He's not the starter, and that's what stands out to me as part of the reason. You know, this is a run-first team with Drew Brees having one of his highest completion percentages of all time statistically going into last night's game. And we just didn't see it get done. And a lot of that I'm going to blame on a little bit of the running game. I I don't think you can truly win the way they do with trying to run it consistently with two running bats. And nobody gets hot. Nobody gets in momentum. Nobody kicks it in gear because half the time you're sitting on the sidelines. I get it. You're all stamina up. You've got the energy, but you're not producing on the field because you're not getting the consistent reps. That's one thing that really stands out to me. We don't see this done by many other teams, and the only team that truly does something like this is kind of the New England Patriots. And you look at their offense and how they work it, they do it a little bit more different with one of them, like James White, being just a pure catcher, while the other one, Sony Michelle, is more of the running back. That's how they work that system. Cleveland, it just didn't work out. They had Nick Chubb, they have Carlos Hyde, they had to trade one of them away. Atlanta, their offense was a little bit different. Telvin Coleman was more of just a pure catcher, and Devontae Freeman was more of a pure runner. But for New Orleans, they're trying to use both of them for both styles, and I don't think that it will work out truly as much as New Orleans wants it to, and I think that's one of the big flaws that stand out to me because they took advantage of that. The but running Nick, backs never got going, and it forced Drew Brees to stay in a, more of a pocket, and they put a lot of pressure for just short passes. But, Nick, who won the Super Bowl last year? Who won the Super Bowl last year? Yeah. The Philadelphia Eagles. How many running backs did they have? They had, like, seven. <laughs> like, you can win. This is, this is where the NFL is going, though. You have to have two running backs if you want to win games because it keeps your runners fresh, fresher, honestly. I agree with the two running backs because one of them gets hurt a lot. But I don't agree with the two running bats of you need two running bats because you need both of them to touch the football. Guys like Todd Gurley is the only running back. James Conner replaced Le'Veon Bell. He's the only running back. Barkley is the only running back. Zeke is the only running back. Yeah, there's one or two plays that, uh, what did we see, like uh, Smith get in for Zeke and he ran the ball or he caught the ball and he was part of the plays. But that's because of how much they involve the running back in the game. That even when Zeke is out, the other guy has to be involved and he's not just a decoy. But overall, this is the only team that I can think of that just does two running bats consistently every single game. But 
I mean, are you a fan of the two running back style, though? You know, I kind of am, though, especially if they're on the field at the same time. Uh, I think it just adds more. You don't know where to go with the football if you're if you're on the other side, if you're on the defense. You don't know if they're giving it to Kamara. You don't know if they're giving it to Ingram. And I think it gives you more options um, if you're Drew Brees, too, in calling plays. I think it just makes them – when you have two good ones like this, I think it can make your offense really, really dynamic. You know, you mentioned a couple other teams that only have one. You know, Todd Gurley is a, is a freak of human nature. But, like – the Giants' offense still isn't good with just Barkley. You know, and part of that is because of their quarterback. But I feel like when teams can use it effectively, it's a really, really good thing to have. Uh, it's, it is tough to value it, but for New Orleans, we saw last week, what was the real highlight of the game? Four undrafted wide receivers scoring a touchdown. You don't need star players everywhere. New Orleans has that at Michael Thomas at wide receiver. New Orleans has that with two running backs, but they only need one. They have it with, what, one of the best three quarterbacks in the NFL. Statistically, he's not really putting up the numbers that we've used to see for Drew Brees because he's had a running back game. But I don't think now that he finally has a running back game, he's got to fall off so much. The Steelers are a great example. Le'Veon Bell has been one of the best running backs in the NFL for years. But Ben Roethlisberger's numbers, Antonio Brown's numbers, Juju Smith-Schuster's numbers last season, all were great. So it doesn't have to just be a Le'Veon Bell taking away from the rest of the team. It should enhance the team. But in this case, because you try and get two guys involved more often, I think there's going to be a lot of flaws come the playoffs or they're just trying to save Kamar for the playoffs and then let him go loose. So I'm wondering which one they're going to do, but I don't think the two running back style is going to be the right option. Moving on to Green Bay. We're talking about great quarterbacks, and obviously one of them, Aaron Rodgers, there's not really much of an argument on that style. He's one of the top three quarterbacks in the NFL as well. But to simply say it, Green Bay's a mess. They're 4-6-1 this season. They're just not winning. They're two games out of the playoffs. Their odds of getting to the playoffs is just atrocious at this point. And they face some tough teams. They've lost four out of the last five since the bye week, losing to the Rams, the Patriots, Seattle, Minnesota, and only beating Miami convincingly. But, Jose, let's start. Do the Packers have a chance of making the playoffs this season? No. Uh, I think this team is just too broken. Um, to me, Aaron Rodgers, I'm no doctor, but he doesn't look fully healthy. I mean, remember, this guy took a huge hit in week one. Was it from Khalil Mack? And, like, left the game and then came back and pulled off a miracle. But he was still hurt very, very badly in that game. So since week one, I don't feel like Aaron Rodgers has been right. Um, and when you look at the NFC right now, the two wildcard spots are being held by Minnesota and Washington. Green Bay sits at 4-6-1. and one. They have to jump over about five teams yep. if they want to make the playoffs. When Minnesota, look, I'm sorry, go ahead. When you look at it, Minnesota sits 4-1. and one, Then Washington, Seattle, Carolina are all sits and five. And then the Eagles are five and six. And then there's Green Bay. Exactly. So if you really expect me to believe that one of these teams in front of them is just going to if, if not just one, they pretty much need all of them to just 
happen to explode and like all derail their seasons, I don't think it's going to happen. I think Seattle is extremely hot right now. I think they're playing with a full head of confidence. Um, you know, Carolina is one of those, you know, is one of those teams that's very streaky. They can get hot or they can get cold. But to me, there's just too many teams for Green Bay to jump over. Um, you know, if this was one of those years where everybody wasn't playing well, then yeah, they definitely have a shot. Or if they were a little bit closer, if they were just like maybe in the seventh seed instead of the tenth seed right now, I'd say they have a shot. But Aaron Rodgers is a miracle worker, but he's not a miracle worker to help them jump up four spots in the standings, especially when you have some good teams in the mix here who, you know, Minnesota has had a down year, right? There's some standards. They're only 6-4-1. and one. I think people expect them to be better. Um, Seattle, again, is just really hot right now. Philadelphia should be better than 5-6. and six. Could be 6-6 six and six after Monday. Um, I think there's too many good teams in front of them that are in a better spot to make the playoffs. Again, I think the Packers, you know, this is a team that Aaron Rodgers doesn't have a lot of options like he usually does in the years past, which he barely had in the years past anyways, which says something about this year's team. And the defense is just not good. And Mike McCarthy is not doing a really, really good job this year. So I think the de- I think the deck is finally stacked too much against Aaron Rodgers, and there's way too many teams in front of them. Well, we need somebody to blame. So that's what I'm going to go on this next topic of. Because is this Aaron Rodgers' fault that this team is this bad? Uh, is this just this team is just complete garbage? And you know that's just what they are. And uh, even an MVP in Aaron Rodgers and one of the three best quarterbacks in the league can't get this team to 500. Is this the coaching's fault? What's what's the problem right now? What would you say is the biggest number one issue? Well, or honestly, who has to I, go as well if there's an issue? Well, I think at the end of the year, Mike McCarthy has to go. Um, you know, some of these plays have been terrible. It kind of looks like Aaron Rodgers has lost trust in McCarthy. Um, and Aaron Rodgers will never be the guy to come out and admit on TV, like, hey, this guy sucks, he has to go. But I honestly, and you could tell me if I'm wrong here, I honestly feel like Aaron Rodgers has been dropping hints over the past couple couple of weeks that things need to change here in Green Bay, right? He kind of looks fed up. He kind of looks angry. And that's just in my opinion. But I think Aaron Rodgers knows, hey, technically I don't have a lot of time left. I've had a lot of injuries over my career. My body's gotten beaten up a lot. You know, I'm not Tom Brady where... I'm 40 years old and my body still looks like I'm 25, right? You know, Aaron Rodgers has had more injuries. Aaron Rodgers has taken more hits, in my opinion, than Tom Brady. And honestly, when are they going to give Aaron Rodgers weapons they can really work with? I mean, in years past, Aaron Rodgers has made his wide receivers look really good. I mean, Jordy Nelson goes to Oakland and he's not that good over there. They, they've let go of Ty Montgomery already because, you know, he's been an issue with the team. Like, honestly, it's the manager's fault, the head coach's fault. My apologies. So I think Mike McCarthy needs to go. But also, if you're ownership or if you're the front office for Green Bay, get Aaron Rodgers some guys that he can work with. You know, get a good running game behind him. Draft some people. Because right now you have one of the best quarterbacks in football and you're saying, OK, that's it. We're done relying too much on Aaron Rodgers, and that's just not fair, you know? And the Saints have a great quarterback, but that doesn't stop them from getting dynamic wide receivers for Breeze to work with. That doesn't stop them from getting running backs to help take over the game. Just because your quarterback is great doesn't mean you should just toss your hands up in the air and say, okay, we're done, 
Because if your quarterback doesn't have anybody to throw to, it's not going to matter how good your quarterback is sometimes. So I think there's a lot of blame everywhere for Green Bay. But to me, it's mostly on the GM, the front office for not giving weapons to Aaron Rodgers, but also to Mike McCarthy. And it may not be Mike McCarthy's full fault here, but somebody does need to get fired. After a year like this, somebody does need to get fired, and McCarthy's going to get canned probably. There's a lot of things that have to go. And you look at this team, it's a lot of what Aaron Rodgers has had in years prior. Top wide receiver, Devontae Adams. Really good tight end, Jimmy Graham. Although he struggled to stay healthy, what did the Patriots have? Jared Cook a couple seasons ago. They, they consistently have a good tight end. They consistently have top wide receivers. They have Aaron Rodgers. Adam Jones is phenomenal this season. He's averaging six yards a carry. You can't ask much more than that from your running back. Play calling is my issue. Now, they're 2 of 10 on third down in that loss to Minnesota. Can't happen. Not when you have Aaron Rodgers. Can't happen. A lot of their options, a lot of their plays is just, okay, we're going to call hike. Aaron Rodgers is going to run around the field. And he's going to make something happen with his lights. And one of you guys get open. And maybe it will be a 40-yard play. Or maybe it will be a 5-yard play. Or maybe it will be a 15 But that's our play. Ready? Go. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that because how many times have we talked about Aaron Rodgers getting injured? You know who doesn't get injured? Eli Manning. You know who doesn't get injured? Tom Brady, Matthew Stafford, Matt Ryan, Drew Brees. Why? They don't move from that pocket. Aaron Rodgers is one of the best quarterbacks in football, and he loves to dance around. He loves to break it out for 10 yards. And you know what he also loves to do, apparently? Get injured. Miss time. That, that doesn't work when you get older. That doesn't work for any of the quarterbacks when they get older. It's not the style. They need a new play calling. They need a new offense coordinator. They need a new head coach, Mike McCarthy, as he said, I don't see him coming back next season. And they need a lot of defensive changes. You know, you need offensive linemen that can protect Aaron Rodgers. When this team was great, they were able to protect Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers, when the pocket finally broke down, was able to move around with his legs, run the ball for a little bit, or just open up bomb passes. But this is this is an offense that is built around, we're going to throw a 40-yard pass, Every drive, and if we don't get it, I guess we're punting the ball. And Aaron Rodgers wasn't able to get us the touchdown that drive. It doesn't work like that. You know, Tom Brady's a great example. How many dink passes does this guy throw? How many times does he just drop it off to James White? Or throw it a little bit to Julian Edelman on third down? Or Gronkowski for a big play? But it's very rare in, in those big yard plays. Majority of the time, it's dink passes, short third downs, getting the first downs, not even getting to third down. And it works for the Patriots. And there's all different offensive styles that work for their teams and work for the quarterbacks. But you know what doesn't work? Oh, we got Aaron Rodgers. He'll make something happen. Just that's what it looks like every single game. It doesn't help at the end of the day that the payroll for Green Bay is very small. And it doesn't help that you have to pay a high, high, high price for a top quarterback. It's great to have that top quarterback, 
but it doesn't help your payroll. It doesn't help you bring in the players that you want to sign because they're never going to bring in the players they want to sign. And that's always going to be a Green Bay disadvantage. But you're four sits and one this season. You have wins over. This is atrocious. When you think of who they have wins over this year, it's Miami. It's teams like San Francisco. You're talking about the Bears week one they beat. Now, the the Bears week one, we didn't know who they really were. Oh, and they beat Buffalo 22-0. That's their four wins. That's it. That's all the teams they've beaten. Uh, we can combine that to, yeah, that's right. Whatever. Aaron Rodgers can't beat anybody good. So I don't know who's to blame, but I'm blaming almost pretty much everything because this this is terrible what they're doing out there. When you talk about you have the best one of the best quarterbacks in football, you can't get wins, you can't get over 500, and we got to hear a quote probably before the end of the season like Rolats again in order to get to the playoffs. No, it doesn't work like that consistently. The Packers are not making the playoffs. They have to change this defense. Clay Matthews is probably gone at the end of the season. They got to bring in younger guys. They got to hit at the draft. They, they got a lot to work on, and this team is is done. And I don't. And we're going to see a different Green Bay team, unless and if we don't, we're in the same problem next year. All right, we spoke a little bit about the NFC playoff spots, but we'll talk about the AFC one. Uh, best chance for the final AFC playoff spot. So when you look at it right now in the standings in the AFC, the Chargers at 8-3 and three have the fifth seed. They're two games up on both Baltimore and Indianapolis, who are both 6-5. and five. And then from there, Miami, Cincinnati, Denver, Denver and Cincinnati both play each other. Tennessee are all 5-6. and six. And for you, just for you, Jose, Cleveland's 4 sits and one from there it doesn't matter (laughs) even honestly even jacksonville's out of it we we won't get in jacksonville too much that's what ramsey gets though let's just say that (laughs) all right so i would say both teams sits five baltimore with lamar jackson indianapolis with andrew luck who's got the best chance to get in this sit seed is it one of the five sits in teams let's hear it I am going to roll with the Colts, actually. Um, you know I love Lamar Jackson, too. Uh, I believe it's the Lamar Jackson era. I don't think Joe Flacco is getting his job back this year. Maybe not ever, at least with the Ravens. Um, I think Lamar Jackson is just playing too good right now. And obviously, you know, I'm a fan of playing the hot hand. So the Ravens should play the hot hand with Lamar Jackson if they want to try to make the playoffs. But to me, the hottest team right now, in my opinion, is the Colts. Um, I think Andrew Luck looks good. I think this is really the first time in a while that Andrew Luck has really looked like he's back. Um, again, Andrew Luck is another guy, kind of like uh, Aaron Rodgers, where he doesn't have much to work with. They're kind of just giving it to Andrew Luck and saying, here, make it work. But they're making it work. The offensive line is pretty good for them. Uh, their defense is stepping up in the right times. And I just think the Colts are getting hot at the right time. Um, you know, they're winning games via game-winning kicks from uh, Father Time himself, Vinatieri. You know, it's, it's just there's a lot of things that are coming together nicely for the Colts. That's just a Cinderella story. And I know a lot of people don't like to believe in momentum, and a lot of people don't like to believe in everything clicking at the right time as a reason. But honestly, for the Colts, I feel like it's just one of those things where everything is coming together very nicely for them. I don't see Miami being a serious threat, even though they're right there at 5-6. and six. The Bengals, to me, are awful. And 
when Marvin Lewis will get fired, no one knows and probably never. Um, Denver could make a run, um, but I don't trust them when it's all said and done, too. They don't even have a real QB. So I think right now, if it's going to come down to the Colts or the Ravens, I give it to the more experienced quarterback with Andrew Luck over Lamar Jackson. And that's taking, I'm not saying anything bad about the Ravens or Lamar Jackson. It's just I think they're more inexperienced at this point with Jackson at the quarterback position. So I give it to Luck and the Colts. Yeah, I look at it and say there are three teams that have a shot. Just just three out of all the ones that we've named. And third best chance is the team that right now has the position, and that's the Baltimore Ravens. Yes, they're six and five, but they got three road teams that face off against Atlanta. And granted, Atlanta's not a great team this season, but I do think Atlanta's going to get the win in Atlanta over Baltimore this week. I really like Lamar Jackson. I'm trusting him this week in my fantasy team that I need a win in over Baker Mayfield. So that tells you how bad I drafted a quarterback this year. But I really like him as far as like stats-wise for fantasy. But as far as the win, this is a better offensive team at Atlanta. I think they're going to be able to put up points against Baltimore. But not only that, Atlanta, Kansas City, and the Los Angeles Chargers – include a, ro- a home game against the Cleveland Browns. This is who the Ravens have to face the rest of the season. These are not easy matchups. And for guys like Kansas City and the Chargers, we know that they're pretty much going to make the playoffs at this point, unless an ultimate collapse. But 9-2, and 8-3, and three, these teams are facing not only for their division, but they're also trying to get the bye week. I mean, the Chargers at either 8-3, and three, they have the same record as... New England and Houston, that if they were to pass Kansas City, they could be looking at a bye week. Kansas City's right now the number one team in the uh, AFC, but the Chargers right on their tail. So both of these teams are going to be competing in those games. They're going to need the wins, and they should be able to get them over Baltimore. The second team that has the best chance is the Denver Broncos because they probably have the weakest schedule among all these teams. At 5-6, and six, they're a little bit behind, but they're playing teams like Cincinnati, San Francisco, Cleveland, Oakland, and a final game against the Chargers this season. I mean, this is all winnable games for Denver. When you consider it, they could win out. They could win four of these games in a row. So Denver certainly has a great chance. But again, I'm like you. I'm going to give it to Indianapolis. They're 6-5. and five. They have a little bit of. Uh, they don't have as weak a schedule as Denver. They still have Houston. They still have Dallas. But they have three division games. Then the Giants as well. And Indianapolis, I think it's like eight straight weeks of a minimum of three touchdown passes by Andrew Luck. The quarterback choices are what? Lamar Jackson or slash Joe Flacco? I. Uh, it's not a, It's not really a debate on which team has the best quarterback at this point. Indianapolis, they have an easier schedule than Baltimore, so I'm going to give Indianapolis the final cha- uh, final spot. But I don't want to sleep on Denver. Denver's that one team where it's like, you know, they could make the big push, and they could jump right back in this. They're only a game out, and they have such a weak schedule that they could, you know, we could see three teams from the AFC West and not one put. Gruden coaching, but we could see three teams from the AFC West certainly make the playoffs this year. Uh, don't sleep on Denver, but I am giving it to Indianapolis. On the NFC side, though, there there's even more of uh, similarities of teams that are in it, and this includes also the fifth seed because 
Minnesota just sits four and one. We spoke about how many teams are sits in five. There are three Washington, Seattle, Carolina. Philadelphia is right in this, especially if they beat Washington. Then you're looking at those two teams, both sits and sits. Um, who's your two teams that have the best chance of making it? Well, for the NFC um, in their wild card spots, I think Minnesota is probably a shoe in to get in. Um, I think the tie is going to help them when it's all said and done, too, uh, especially since they'll have a winning record. I think Minnesota is too good not to get in. Um, so I think they're a lock for that fifth seed. So really, it's about who gets that sixth seed. And again, I like to go with momentum. And I think Seattle is going to be the team to get it. I think Washington's going to fall apart towards the end. No real quarterback. Um, so it's very hard to see them, you know, trying to salvage their season and get that last wild card spot. Um, I think Seattle, and you got to give Seattle a ton of credit, right? Because in the beginning of the year, you know, we saw Seattle trade away Richard Sherman and, you know, Marshawn Lynch left two years ago. And we were talking about how this is the fall of Seattle, the fall of Legion of Boom. Uh, you know, Earl Thomas was holding out, then he came back, then he got hurt. But when it's all said and done, the Seahawks are still relevant. Why? Because of Russell Wilson. Uh, again, another QB who doesn't have the most dynamic wide receivers. They don't have the, the most dynamic run game. Their defense has taken a step backwards. They've gotten a little slower from years past. But Russell Wilson is still one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL making things happen. Um, and again, Seattle's just playing really good football right now. They're playing, they're really hot and they're really consistent. So Seattle deserves a lot of credit, especially in a division where it was supposed to be a four team race, right? Because Jimmy G was supposed to be leading the 49ers before he got hurt. And Arizona was supposed to take a big step forward this year where either Rosen or Bradford as their QB and Seattle was supposed to get lost in a shuffle of all this youth in the NFC West. But guess who's in second place? Guess who's in the wild card picture? The you know, age-old Seattle, right? So I think Seattle's done a great job of bouncing back this year um, despite being counted out very early, even before the season began. Um, so I think Seattle deserves a ton of credit, and I think Seattle's going to end up grabbing that last spot. So Minnesota and Seattle for me. I think this is going to come down to who can get to nine. Because if you can get to nine, I think you're going to get to the playoffs. And it's very tough when you look at the schedules, that looking at it, Green Bay still has a great shot because their toughest team... We just spoke about this, Nick. <laughs> yeah, Green Bay still has a great shot after looking at all their schedules. But no, I'm going to give it to Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota does have a tough matchup against the Patriots. I think they are going to beat the Patriots in Foxborough. I, I'm going to take that as one of my big upset looks at. Um, and then they do play Seattle next week, so that could be the defining moments for Minnesota these next two weeks. If they win both games, you're talking about them easily getting in. Uh, so I really like Minnesota. Carolina, they might be one, the better 6-5 team, but they did just lose to Seattle. They do have to play a ton of division games, two against the Saints, one against the Falcons that they've lost to. I think that's just too much for Carolina to handle. Uh, Washington, if they can make it, congratulations at this point, because no one will expect you to be anything relevant with no quarterback and Still not signing Colin Kaepernick. And then it leaves you with Philadelphia as an option, but they play a lot of tough games as well. So, end of the day, I'm going to give it to like you had. Minnesota, Seattle, I really like. And only three teams have a positive differential. Minnesota, Seattle, and Carolina. And Carolina has just five. The other two, 
a little bit higher. Not great, but they still have positive uh, differential scoring. So I'm going to give it to the two higher ones at Minnesota and Seattle, and I'm going to say they make the playoffs. Uh, so a little bit of a similarity there on who we think. Uh, a lot of similarities now that I think we both have Indianapolis, Minnesota, and Seattle. Uh, but I, I do think my upset pitch is going to be Minnesota beating the Patriots. And anytime you beat the Patriots in a road matchup, I think that's an upset right there. Uh, let's go into basketball for a little bit. The Raptors win in overtime against the Warriors last night. And Kevin Durant, 51 points. Kawhi Leonard, 37 points. This was a game that the Raptors were highly favorited, and I'm just upset I didn't bet on it uh, because I would have took the Warriors as the dog. But to start the season, I had the Raptors as the third best team in the Eastern Conference. That didn't change after Jimmy Butler was traded. This team is 19-4, and four, and it was a you gave only just a slight edge to the Celtics before the season cha- uh, started, and you were very much buying into the Raptors a little bit more, uh, much more than I was, even after the Butler trade. Should teams be giving more respect to the Toronto Raptors with them being 19-4, and 10-2 and at home, 9-2 and on the road, uh, winning games? Or is this more just, oh, this is the regular season, this is Toronto's fun time? Well, I think it's actually a little bit of both, honestly, because I feel like the – and this is very understandable. I feel like the worry is that when the Raptors got Leonard, you know, you traded away DeRozan – you know, what does that do for the chemistry of the team? Because when you think of the Toronto Raptors, a big strength of theirs was the chemistry between Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, right? So not that Lowry and Leonard can't get along, but when you bring in someone like Leonard, you can't help but realize, you know, how does that change the relationship between <clears throat> the point guard and Kyle Lowry when his best friend was traded for Kawhi Leonard? Will he understand that it's just business at the end of the day? And, you know, the the chemistry on this court is really, really good. And not only that, but this team is very good defensively. Excuse me. So remember that they have Serge Ibaka as well, too. And they brought in Danny Green, who's more of a three-point specialist. But this team is just really, really good defensively. And I think people forget that a lot, too. But at the end of the day, you know, you got to give defense credit. And Kawhi Leonard is one of the best two-way players in the game on defense and on offense. So... Yes, they do deserve more credit because they are a better team than people are implying. But, like you said, it is regular season. And the Raptors did finish with the best record last year. And the Raptors are no strangers to the top of the uh, the Eastern Conference anyways. So really what it comes down to is they're almost kind of like the Warriors in a sense where it's like, okay, you know you're going to make the playoffs. The East is very weak. You know the Raptors are going to be in it. They're going to be one of the eight teams. The question is, what happens once you make the playoffs? Just like the Warriors, right? We don't care that the Warriors are struggling. They're going to make the playoffs. What happens once you get to the playoffs is the question. And with the Raptors, there's more pressure on them now more than ever. Because guess what? There's no LeBron James in the East. So by that standard, it's probably going to come down to Toronto and Boston at the end of the day when it comes down to the Eastern Conference Finals. And your only goal is to get past Boston. There's no LeBron James. So really, there's no excuses on why the Raptors should be terrible anymore. So there's a ton of pressure on Toronto. But it's like you said, they deserve more credit. But also, it's the regular season. We don't care what happens with Toronto until it gets to the playoffs. Can they get over that hump? And one of the big changes for Toronto was Abadra moving from power forward to center. 
and it, it makes it a little bit easier. Abate then has the speed. Uh, he can handle the center position. He, he just can't handle the quickness of power forwards in the NBA. So in doing that, you're, you're trading a little bit of size, but you're upgrading on more offense uh, on quicker players, and, and you're getting the job done. Uh, I mean, Pascal Steichem, we'll call him that. Uh, <laughs> he's averaging almost 30 minutes a game, 15 points per game, uh, 63.8 from the field. So he's having a great power uh, game season so far as the starting power forward. They 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 put their power forwards at very young age. Uh, centers of like Abate and Valchunas, a little bit older, more veteran style. It almost... I don't want to say it reminds me of the Verlander trade, but it almost is like saying, hey, Toronto, things are now serious. You went from having friend, or we went from having this to being a real friend area to now it's like we brought in Kawhi Leonard. It just got real. So that's what it almost looks like to me. It, it's almost like, okay, it's not, it, this is now a serious team. This is more team thinking championship. This is more of a team thinking, thank God LeBron James is in the Western Conference. Toronto's got some really good road wins in the Western Conference. Toronto's putting up uh, wins at home, and I think they, they're they a team that necessarily needs home court. They're the only team playing in Canada to begin with. They, they, they would love home court in the entire uh, NBA playoffs. So I think this is helping them out uh, a ton. Am I buying into them yet? No. They beat the Warriors. The Warriors didn't have Curry or Draymond Green. The Warriors were in this game the entire way without those two players, and it almost was like the Warriors finally got serious when the fourth quarter happened, even when they were down by like 15 for most of the game. So I'm not buying into the Raptors completely. I'm not going to say they're better than the Warriors, and I'm not really sure where to put them even in the Eastern Conference yeah, I, I think they're better than Milwaukee. I still like Philadelphia. Boston's, you know, 500, but the moment they get going is the moment everyone will buy into Boston, no matter what position seating they are in. So I don't really know where to value Toronto, but the way I look at it is they're much more improved than last season. They're obviously going for a championship this year. They're going for more than just having to face LeBron James in the second round. But it's really tough to really value where the Raptors are because we don't necessarily know until the playoffs come. We do think we're gonna still think they're gonna be one of the best two teams in the Eastern Conference record-wise, no matter what. I think that was a given going into this year, and at this point they're going to be. But yeah, you know, it's it's tough to look at them. I'm I'm not counting them out. I'm not disrespecting them. It's just. You know, you've never performed in the playoffs yet. How do I buy into it now? Jose, Houston, we we got a problem, right? The Raptors uh, are great, but the Rockets, they suck right now. Man, you've been waiting to use that line for a while. Oh, yes. <laughs> Cliché lines are my specialty. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, the Raptors have lost four. Uh, the Rockets have lost four in a row, and... When you look at who they've lost to, I mean, my that's even worse. They've lost to Dallas, 
on the road against Washington, on the road against Cleveland, and on the road against Detroit. That's their four losses in a row. They're 9-11. and 11. They have the second least amount of wins in the Western Conference. They have an MVP in James Harden. They have Chris Paul, who's injured right now. They have Clint Capella. This team, when the three of them were on the court, I think lost, what, nine games entirely for the year or something? They're, they're incredible when they're all healthy. Unfortunately, they're not. And Chris Paul's not healthy. But, I mean, are, are you worried about the Rockets yet? I'm not worried because I don't see them getting far this year, honestly. You know, this is a team that made it to the Western Conference Finals last year. But this team, like, refuses to play defense. And honestly, it's, you know, I think Nick Wright from Fox Sports said it perfectly the other day. James Harden dropped 50 points. Was it Eric Gordon that dropped the, the second most points that night? Uh, I'll check right now to find out for you. Yeah, I mean, I believe it was Eric Gordon that also dropped, what, 30, 40 points as well, too? Or it was either him or P.J. Tucker. Point is, though, is you had both guys have career nights, but you still lost. Why? Because this team doesn't play defense. And you already let go of Carmelo Anthony, so you have no excuse anymore on why you stink. Or because you signed Carmelo Anthony, you had to let go of Trevor Ariza, who was really good on defense, too. And that's hurting you now. Because you value offense so much that you don't even care about defense. But guess what? In basketball, you have to play both. You have to have players that can do both, score a little bit, and play some defense. Even James Harden himself doesn't play a lot of defense. This Rockets team will not get anywhere, especially when you have so many explosive Western teams that you can't even guard. And honestly, it's it's kind of sad, too, because Chris Paul, even when he's healthy, yeah, it gives him a little bit of an edge, but they're still not that good of a team this year. So, honestly, I'm not worried about the Rockets because I don't expect much from them this year. So, referring to what you were saying earlier, James Harden scored 54. Uh, Gordon scored 36. The two combined for 90 of the 131 and lost by four to the Wizards. Uh, to the Wizards. To the Wizards. To the, Wizards. Um, the, the, the last game they played, they lost by 20. James Harden put up 25 points. He had a triple-double, 17 assists. He was one of five players on the team to score 17 or more points. They lost by 20. Rockets are in serious trouble in that sense. And if Chris Paul comes back, does that help out their team? Yes, 100%. But their offense is still good, even without Chris Paul. And I don't think their defense is going to improve that much with that with Chris Paul. In all four losses, they've scored 108 or more. And they've lost each game by a minimum of five or more. So I, I'm, I am a bit concerned about Houston. I do think Chris Paul will actually help their team a lot when he gets back. But I mean, the, this team is showing some serious flaws that if Chris Paul can't stay healthy, I mean, in the playoffs, they're screwed. They showed that last year when they couldn't win what, one of the two games against the Warriors and Chris Ball went down? They, they could have easily gotten into the finals with Chris Ball. But I, I'm, I'm certainly concerned about Houston. They're, they're not going to have like an uphill climb 
when Chris Paul shits matches, they'll win the games against their own uh, division. They'll win their team's games against the Western Conference. They'll certainly put themselves back in it. But it is just, you know, it is terrible. 9-11 and 11 they are right now. They've got a 450 winning percentage. And they got the second least amount of wins to just Phoenix. The Sacramento Kings have more wins than the Houston Rockets this season. The Minnesota Timberwolves traded away Jimmy Butler, and they have more wins than the Houston Rockets this season. Brooklyn has one less win than the Houston Rockets this season. I think that's my favorite one now. <laughs> uh, but Jose, let me ask you this one. We're, we're talking about Chris Paul being injured, but also on the Warriors' side, Steph Curry's injured. Who is more important to their team? Steph Curry? For the Warriors or Chris Paul for the Rockets? Well, this is going to be a little bit hard to believe. I'm going to pick Steph Curry in this situation. Why? Because ever since Steph Curry went down, you see all these chemistry issues too. I really believe that not only does Steph Curry hold the Warriors together on the court, but I think he also holds them together off the court too. I think even though they have four All-Stars, I still think this team runs through Curry. They still benefit tremendously when he's on the court. And I think they really benefit from having his persona and his attitude on the court, too. I always feel like the Warriors are way more dangerous when Curry is playing as opposed to when he's not. Like, even though they still have Thompson, Durant, and Green, I feel like the Warriors are beatable when Curry's not there. And I think it's just because his presence alone, you got to respect the three, you got to respect, you know, all of these other aspects, aspects of his game. So I just think Curry is way more beneficial to the Warriors than Paul is, even though, like you mentioned, they can't seem to win a game without Chris Paul. Um, but to me, if Chris Paul comes back, it doesn't change the fact that the Rockets are still going to lose to crappy teams because they don't play defense. Yeah, I'm going to take Steph Curry. I think he, like you said, he brings everything. There's more than just on-the-court factors that he brings to this team. He brings a lot more leadership. He brings the face of this team. I think Kevin Durant takes a bad seat to him more often. I think Draymond Green... Is the only it only takes bad seat to him. I, I think Draymond Green will get in the face of any one of his teammates, but Curry. I, so I think there there's more pressure on players to step up without him there. There there's so much more going on for his team. Whereas like James Harden, you know, he's used to not having Chris Paul at times and still getting the job done and still putting up a ton. But obviously the defense isn't there when you talk about James Harden and company. But Curry, I think, is more valuable to his team on every aspect. And But at the end of the day, both teams, both teams are going to need their stars in order to make a deep playoff run, in order to have a chance at winning an NBA Finals, uh, because I don't think the Warriors without Curry is good enough to get the job done, even when you consider guys like Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green, and even DeMarcus Cousins. It's tough to say that that team wouldn't be good enough even without Curry, but that's how much Curry, I think, means to the Warriors. All right, Jose, I know it's early. We're only about like a fourth of the season in for the NBA, but who is your MVP favorite right now? Ah, uh, I mean... That's a tough question again, like you said, since it's so, so early. Um, 
And there's a lot of good people playing well. I think Leonard's playing at a really elite level right now. Uh, Tentacumpo looks really, really good. Um, but I have to give it to anybody. I am going to roll with Kawhi Leonard. <laughs> uh, even though I don't like how he behaved in San Antonio for a bit, and that could be a discussion for a different day, whether it was his fault or not. Um when I look at most valuable player, I look at who has the most impact to his team. And it's like you said, when Kawhi Leonard got to Toronto, it became all business over there. It's no more fun and games. It's no more holding hands and, and running around in circles and having fun. It's about playing basketball. And I think Kawhi Leonard is one of the best two-way players in the game. Um, you know, I think this could be, you know, a, a, a race that you look at it. And if, the, if Toronto does get over that hump and finally make it to the finals... Um, not only is it because LeBron James is not in the East anymore, but it might be because of Kawhi Leonard got traded there and it became all serious about basketball um, once Kawhi Leonard got there. And that's no disrespect to DeMar DeRozan, um, but there was a culture change when Leonard got there. So anytime I'll do ask this question, I'll probably say the same name, LeBron James. LeBron, LeBron James, James. LeBron James, LeBron James. But... I'll take Giannis, and the name I can't say, Antetokounmpo. I almost had it. <laughs> say it one more time. Antetokounmpo. No, Antetokounmpo. Antetokounmpo. Nope. We could spend the entire podcast <laughs> just having nit fumbles of, of different names, so we'll avoid that. But 27.3 points per game, 12.9 rebounds per game, 6 assists per game, and that I won't ignore. Uh to me right now, he's the MVP favorite. Not only that, but one of the big things that stand out, Milwaukee's 15-6. and six. They've got the second-best record in the entire NBA right now, just to the Toronto Raptors. If that holds up, now I don't assume them to stay the second seed, but I certainly think they're going to finish in the top four in the Eastern Conference. They're certainly going to have a lot more wins than they did the season prior. And I think something like that also stands out to me more because of the fact that you went from, you know, a little bit of 500 to now you shot up to your, you're playing 650 win percentage, 700 win percentage. Your, your win percentage is over the top and you're getting more wins this season because of the fact that you are overplaying than what you did last season. That to me is what puts out a, another factor. And so I look at that as a reason why Giannis right now is my MVP favorite. Yeah, I'm just saying Giannis. Uh, why he's my MVP favorite for right now. But obviously when season ends, I'll probably say LeBron James. All right, we're going to go into baseball right now. And, you know, Jose, you were covering a little bit for the MLB, riding for the Rising Apple as well. You know, it seems like we can't do a podcast lately without talking about the Mets, which I don't mind. We should. We both enjoy watching the Mets games, even how pitiful they play sometimes all the time. Yeah, usually we try to hide the fact that we're Mets fans. Yeah. Uh, it's nothing proud of. It's, it's, it's paper bad seasons every season except one season, and then it's just disappointment. Uh, but the Mets are looking at a trade, interesting enough. Robinson Cano, Edwin Diaz possibly going to the Mets. The Mariners looking to trade off salary. First, we'll start with the Mariners part before we get into the Mets part. 
Should the Mariners be looking to do a trade like this where they're giving away Robinson Cano and trading away what is one of the best closers and relief pitchers in all of baseball? So, yes and no for the Mariners. Because, like you said, Edwin Diaz is one of the most, is the best closers in baseball. And there's one thing that Edwin Diaz offers that guys like Craig Kimbrell Andrew Miller, Zach Britton, who are all free agents, by the way, right? There's about like 15 relievers that could possibly pitch the eighth and the ninth inning for any team that's out on the market right now. I may be exaggerating with the number, but you get what I'm saying. The one thing that Edwin Diaz offers that these other guys don't is that he's young and he's under club control until 2022 or 2023, I believe. So that's a long time of Edwin Diaz. That, to me is what the Mariners should be capitalizing on. Why would you pair Diaz alongside a guy like Cano and theoretically, again, we're not talking about the Mets yet, but theoretically, you're going to get less value back because you're trying to find a team that has to take on Cano's contract. Even if you give them money, a team can battle back and be like, okay, well, we're taking Cano off your hands, which is a huge, huge salary relief for you guys. We're not going to give up as many prospects for Edwin Diaz as we would if we were just trading for Diaz. I think the Mariners are missing out on a huge opportunity to really capitalize and trade Diaz for a boatload of prospects to a team that really wants him for his years of control as well, too. I think they should get rid of Cano because, again, that's a huge financial restraint that's already burdening them. And they already traded Paxton, so they're already committed to a rebuild. But I think pairing them together... Again, barring, we'll get into the Mets a little bit, forgetting what the Mets are offering for a second, pairing Diaz with Cano really hurts the value that you can get back for a guy like Edwin Diaz. So, this reminds me of the Atlanta Braves when they traded away Craig Kimball to the Padres. They essentially were trading the best closer in all of baseball. And it was Craig Kimball, and who gives, it doesn't matter. It, it, it doesn't matter who was second, it was Craig Kimball, and then it was Craig Kimball, and then it was Craig Kimball, and then it was Craig Kimball. That was it. That was the top five. That was, it was just, doesn't matter, he's a way ahead of everybody else. And it got to the point of, why would you want to trade the best relief pitcher in all of baseball? Because he wasn't needed on your team right now. Edwin Diaz had 73 games, 73 innings, 124 strikeouts. We can ignore the fact that he had the 57 saves. We, we no, know, don't ignore we, that. That's great. I, I'll ignore that. Because that reminds me of K-Rod. When right. the Mets brought in K-Rod, he had the most saves um, with the Angels. And then the Mets brought him in. That, that, that's what it reminds me of. The, the most saves in baseball the year prior, it's a great stat, but it doesn't matter because you need to have really close scoring games. But you know what does matter, though? And I, I don't, I'm sorry to cut you off here, though, but no, no. If, you look, if you look closely into it, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, Edwin Diaz has a boatload of one-run saves. And the Mariners' record, when he comes into the, a one-run ball game, they were almost, I believe they were almost, they were either undefeated or they had a really good win-loss record 
when Edwin Diaz came into a one-run game. And especially for a Mets offense that, no matter who they add, always seems to struggle to score runs. The Mets are going to play a lot of close games. That To me, that's where Diaz comes into play. Now, that I could agree with. That's more important than just a save number. Save exactly. number stands out as in a great thing if you had him on your fantasy team. I did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> help me won the, he helped me win the championship. Um, but they don't they don't really matter that much because it also has to do with runs scored. It yeah. has to do with your run differential. You know, Seattle didn't have even like one of the top ten records in baseball. They had a winning record. They were still like nine games out of the playoffs. And he had like fifteen more saves than any team in the AL. And he had fourteen more than anyone in the NL. So I'm not looking at the saves. What I am looking at is seventy three innings, hundred and twenty four strikeouts. That stands out. Best relief pitcher in baseball? Probably one of the top five. He's easily in the debate after this season. 1.9 City CRA. That looks impressive as well. Pitcher's Park, you know, City Fields is pretty much the same when you look at that. And his save percentage, too, of converting saves. I mean, guys blow saves left and right nowadays. This guy finished almost over a 90%. And as you said, team control net season. So he's probably making like 600,000, or if that, if the Mets even give him a raise. Um, <laughs> and then he's three years of arbitration, so that will obviously boost him up to, you know, decent salary. But what can be average relief pitching uh, on his final year to one of more dominant relief pitching contract numbers? Uh, but at that point, you're still getting uh, a ton of value for him. Is it Worth it for the Mariners? Yeah, they should be doing this because if they're going to try and sell everybody off, this is the way to do it. Because Nelson Cruz is a free agent, James Patston already has been traded, Francisco, um, Felix, it's not Francisco, Felix Hernandez is not the guy of what he was. Probably next to go are going to be guys like Dee Gordon or Gene Siedra. I think they were saying Gene Siedra was possibly going to the NL West earlier in the year's reports. Um, you know, you run out of stuff to build around, and you have to just do exactly what Seattle's doing: sell everybody. And if you can get some really good prospects from the Mets, which is the possibility, and you get rid of Robinson Cano, of twenty plus million a year for the next five years, and the best relief pitcher in baseball that you don't need, it's worth it for Seattle. Here's the question, Jose: Is it worth it for the Mets? So, as you said, I do write for the Rising Apple occasionally. So, like, a lot of us have been going back and forth. Um, you know, it's... On the chat or something? Yeah, and it's just, honestly, because there's really just so many moving parts to it. And what I've, what I've settled on is that, yes, it's worth it. I'm not a fan of bringing in Robinson Cano. He's 36 years old. He's coming off the PED suspension. How much does he have left in the tank? You know me. I like guys who hustle like Brandon Nimmo. Cano's not Brandon Nimmo. He's very nonchalant. But Cano is still a very good baseball player. But again, what does he have left in the tank at age 36? That concerns me, yes. He's still owed a bunch of money. The Mariners look like they're going to throw in a lot of money to help pay off. There's rumors that the Mets might only be on the hook for 60 mil over the next five years, which that's actually a pretty good, you know, bringing it down a lot from where it is right now. It's over 100 mil right now. So if the Mets can bring it down to 60, I think that's a great idea. But let's talk about what's rumored 
to be in the trade. Names have been flying around left and right yesterday. I was so confused. I've never been more frustrated in my life following Twitter or Bleacher Report in my life. So it turns as of right now, if the trade were to happen right now, the Mets would be sending Jay Bruce, Anthony Swarzak, Justin Dunn, Kalenic, who they drafted in the first round last year, sixth overall, and Gershon Bautista. And honestly, I don't like the idea of giving up Dunn and Kalenic in the same deal. I think it should be one or the other. But in this particular trade, I say you do it. Because as a Met fan, I know it's going to look like, oh, we're trading our sixth overall pick for a 36-year-old Cano. But honestly, it's not even about Cano at this point. As a Met fan, I really encourage you to separate the players in this deal, right? Because theoretically, we're trading Jay Bruce and Anthony Swarzak, who both have terrible contracts, for Robinson Cano. So it's like we're getting two trades in one. And yes, Cano is still owed a lot of money. Yes, Cano is still very old. But I would take Cano over the combo of Bruce and Swarzak. And now for Edwin Diaz, <clears throat> yes, we might be overpaying. We're trading away Justin Dunn, who looks like he's finally putting it together in the minor leagues this year, or last year. He was the Mets minor league pitcher of the year, I believe. And I have a lot of high hopes for him. We're trading away Gershon Bautista, who they got in Addison Retrade from Boston. Honestly, he doesn't look like he's going to pan out very well. But Kalenic, as you said, is the interesting name. Is it worth trading last year's first-round pick, the sixth overall pick, for a guy like Edwin Diaz? And I say yeah, because you're not just getting a washed-up closer on a one-year deal. You're getting a closer who had a breakout year last year and is under control for four more years to still be dominant. I know a lot of people are saying, why not just keep Kalenic and sign guys from free agent market? The Mets need more than one reliever. You can sign Kimbrell. You could sign Britton. Yeah, you could sign Andrew Miller. But that, each of those guys are going to cost you about 12 to $15 million per year. Why not sign someone like Britton or Miller after you trade for Diaz? That way, yeah, you spent money on one reliever, but you're also saving money on a great reliever in Edwin Diaz. And you're not just saving money just to save money. You're saving money to get an, a really, really good young closer for the next four years. And honestly... I like Kalenic. I think he has a lot of upside. But you need to trade a guy like this sometimes in order to you know, really drive it home and try to win now. If Kalenic was in double-A or triple-A closer to the big leagues, I'd be more upset. But with Kalenic, he hasn't even played for Brooklyn yet. He played in Gulf Coast League last year. He tore it up. He's only 19 years old. I think now is the right time to trade him. I would be more upset if it was like trading a Peter Alonso who's like, right on the cusp of getting called up, I'll be more upset of trading a guy like that. So, it's interesting because I'm looking up the contracts right now. And, I mean, if David Wright's still getting paid, he's making $15 million this year, $12 million next season. Assuming Don't bring that, our Lord and Savior into this like that. I agree. Uh, the, the the Mets future manager, um, I, I which I'm full sold on, uh, it most likely won't be getting paid either one of those amounts. So fifteen million and twelve million right there and off the bat over the next two years. Jay Bruce is making thirteen million. So that now you look at it and say, okay, if you trade away Jay Bruce in his full contract and you're not paying David Wright at all anything, that's twenty eight million and twenty five million 
off the books the next two seasons. Robinson Cano makes exactly $25 million each year for the next six, year, uh, for the next six years. I so, what else do the Mets have that cost a lot of money? Well, somebody's name of Ioana Cespedes stands out, who's making $29.5 million the next two years. Then they also have Todd Frazier. So you're looking at how much is going around for the Mets, who's making $9 million just next season. He's a free agent after that. He won't be back with the Mets, I hope. Eh, never say never, Nick. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> What's my point of getting at this? Well, basically, after 2021, there's no Jay Bruce, there's no David Wright, there's no... Todd Frazier, there's no UN assessments. What that means is there's a shit ton of money. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we can curse on a podcast. Okay, I wasn't sure if we should put the uh, NFSW label on it before we send it out, but whatever. Nah, no, we can curse. Anyway, um, here's the basic point of this all. Either the Mets are going to put a large amount of money into free agency which we can all start laughing now. Um, or they're going to trade. Because the Mets, after two years, won't have any money on the team. I know the Wilpons are celebrating hearing that. The point is, if they put a lot of money in this season, they don't have to put in a lot of money in the year's, pri- in the year's future. But what they will have to put into involving is if they're going to keep Noah Syndergaard, if they're going to keep Jacob DeGrom, if they're going to try and sign other players three years down the line in whosever free agency is that time. Robinson Cano helps that out because when he came back from PEDs, he hit over 300. He still had, I think, double figures in both home runs and RBI, home runs and doubles, and he had 50 RBI. So his numbers were fine when he came back from PED. If he gets suspended again, obviously that's a big hit. But for right now, the Mets should be looking at this as, hey, we have the best relief. We have the best starter in baseball. We could have the best relief pitcher in baseball. We could have one of the top second starters in baseball at Noah Syndergaard. We have a pretty good offense around us, pretty good young pieces. We still will have Peter Alonso to play first base in years uh, future. And if Robinson Cano can't even play second base, well, maybe the National League will finally get the uh, DH by the time this contract ends, or he'll move to first base. All viable options. So I'm all for this trade. The only big question mark is, as you said, Jared uh, Twinette, because he looks phenomenal. He... He destroyed the Gulf Coast League in 12 games. He had over 400. And his other time in low A, uh, you know, he still hit 253 with five home runs. He still, he looks like an offensive future weapon in the outfield for the Mets or for whatever team he goes for. And reading what scouts are saying about him, he's going to be possibly a star in baseball. So, that becomes the big question mark of how much do you value this? And I think an agent GM does not value young prospects. He values players that are playing right now. So I do think the Mets are probably going to make this trade in the near future, and it probably is going to have his name in it. 
that should be the only concern for Met fans, but for Met fans that get these type of players, it sort of puts them in the win-now moment. And again, we're talking about a team that doesn't even have Cespedes in their lineup, because who knows when that's going to happen. But Tanopin's a huge piece, a left-handed bat, a great upgrade from Jay Bruce. If Jay Bruce is part of this trade and assume that David Wright's not getting paid over the next two years, David, um, or really over the next, uh, yeah, two years, it's between David Wright and Jay Bruce compra- uh, contracts, make up Robinson Cano's contracts for the two-year span. Seattle probably will eat a little bit of that money. If they take just $5 million a year, then it's just at that point $20 million at that and guys like Todd Frazier, $9 million off the books after this season. Two years from now, Jonas Cespedes contracts off the books, which will then give the Mets even more money on Robinson Cano's contract. So a lot of this works out pretty well if they make this trade. I'm for it. I'm for trading away prospects. It's a rare thing to say, but I don't really love the fact of trading uh, Jared Klinich. But if that's what it takes to get this trade done, so be it. The Mets should be looking to contend with the pieces they have right now. Yeah, I was going to say it's funny. You know, usually you and I are the guys who like to hoard prospects, right? We were very upset when they traded Dilson Herrera for Jay Bruce. You know, we were very upset when they kept trading prospects left and right. But this is one of those scenarios where it's like, as a Met fan, I think you're seeing Cano's name and you're panicking too much. Like, I get it. Cano is old. He'll be 41 at the end of this deal. We don't know what we're getting with Robinson Cano, what's left in the tank. But look at the bigger picture. You're getting a closer for four years of control. Dirt cheap. If the Mets can follow it up with signing another reliever, like I don't want the Mets to make this trade and say, okay, we're done. If the Mets can sign another good reliever like Andrew Miller or Zach Britton or even someone like Adam Adovino, then this trade becomes successful. But if you're a Mets fan, look at the bigger picture. The Braves are really good. If the Phillies end up with Machado or Harper, they're going to be really good. The Mets cannot afford to just not do nothing and expect to win a division. You make a trade like this when you're trying to compete with other teams. And let's say if the Phillies swing and miss on Harper or Machado, all of a sudden the Mets are a strong favorite to either is a strong favorite to compete for the NL East or maybe even a wild card spot as well too. And I truly believe that. So bigger picture, it is win now. And maybe you know, you and I both spoke about this. We didn't agree with the GM signing. We both wanted Chain Bloom because we both felt like the Mets needed to rebuild anyways. But maybe this is the right approach for the Mets. Maybe you go for a win-now method, and then with all the money that will be coming off the box, the, the books by 2021, maybe that's when you start over if things don't go right. But in the meantime, you give yourself two to three years where you can really try and win a title. Sometimes that's not the worst approach either. So just on to no stats, just to finish it off, 80 games, 303 batting average, his first time hitting 303 since 2004, but even since then, you looked at the last three years with Seattle, 280, 298, 287, all good numbers on that factor, 10 home runs in the 80 games, you figure he's going to be a 20-25 home run guy, maybe bringing back to New York will even boost his confidence a little bit, 22 doubles. Uh, this guy averaged 30-plus a season pretty much in his entire career, so you expect him to be that. 100 RBIs or 90-plus RBIs pretty much expected. The guy played phenomenal. The guy came back from his PEDs, and he dominated the MLB. And it's not, well, it won't be the first time the Mets take a guy 
in in this scenario, Bartolo Tolone, I'm looking at you. Cano's uh, numbers aren't bad. It's not like this is when Atlanta made the trade and they traded away Craig Kimball, and they were also piecing B.J. Upton in the trade. This is a top second baseman. He's been a top second baseman his entire career. He's going to finish as a top second baseman. And when you consider the second basemans that are out there, Robinson Cano is probably better than guys like Brian Dozier. I I, I like Brian Dozier, but Brian Dozier is probably going for the same amount of money as Robinson Cano. Or Jason Kipnis. Jason Kipnis is worse than Robinson Cano and still will probably cost you $17 million. You could go Daniel Murphy. I would love Daniel Murphy. But Daniel Murphy will probably cost you about $15 million. For $9 million more, is it better to have Robinson Cano or Daniel Murphy? My heart says Daniel Murphy, but I mean, statistically, <laughs> it, says, it says Robinson Cano. It's a, th- a left-handed hitting batter that they have it team that's with Todd Frazier and Johannes Cespedes and Michael Conforto, Brandon Nim. So they could always use a guy like Cano in this. And another veteran presence that's actually playing, it's always a bonus. So And I'm also the impact that he can have on Ahmed Rosario, both being fellow countrymen, um, that could help a lot too. Yeah, I don't see... The only thing that this can go wrong is if, you know... What Edwin Diaz requires a surgery, or Cano is not anywhere near the factor that he was. And if he plays like he has for Seattle, that's a win. Right there, you're getting two top pieces to your team that you need to fit because they need a second baseman and they need a closer. And I think it also will say for the Met fans of like, hey, we better not be done. There's still plenty of things that you can add to this team, and you should add. Because of the fact that two years from now you're going to have a lot of open money, so you can go out and sign bid right now, and in two years from now you already have that all taken care of. So I, I think it's a good move for the Mets to go after this. Well, lastly on this, we're just going to jump into the NL Central. We talked about the NL East in the MLB, but we'll talk about some of the NL Central. We'll start with the Cincinnati Reds. And, Jose, what should the Cincinnati Reds be looking to do this offseason? Well, the Reds hired a new manager this year, um, so I think that's a good step in the right direction. Uh, Honestly, they need to get some pitching, because outside of uh, Luis Castillo, I don't think they really have anybody else slated for the rotation. Matt Harvey's a free agent, um, and they had a bunch of stopgap guys in there. You can't trust Homer Bailey for the rest of his contract. Um, So, honestly, the Reds keep making strides a lot of their younger players are really good Eugenio Suarez is really good in my opinion um uh you know you still have Joey Votto uh you know Scooter Gannett really had a great year this year so they have good young players they have some good offensive pieces and in that ballpark offensively they're always going to have an advantage so I would really like to see the Reds stride towards competing again and how do you do that I don't know, maybe go out there and sign some guys. I'm not saying go out there and bring in Patrick Corbin, um, but you can go out there and sign a couple of these mid-rotation guys, maybe build a little bit of a stronger bullpen. I just I would like to see at the end of the day the Reds making strides to starting to be competitive again. You know, one of the things I look at is they have Tucker Barnard and Kurt Cassie, uh, both at catcher, and both guys so, can be uh, an everyday catcher. 
So trade Barnhart to the Mets? Sure, I'd gladly take that. I, I think <laughs> the, the Reds should continue what they did last season. Uh, they traded Devin Marzarato. They should look to try and trade a catcher. We hear a lot about uh, JT Robmuto, possibly uh, the Marlins looking to trade him. Uh, overall, in free agency, Yasmani Grandal is a free agent, and you can uh, but and Matt Wieters as well as a free agent. But I think Tucker Barnhart, Cassia, uh, they far less of a price than what you're getting for the two guys on free agent or what you're getting for Real Muto. An everyday catcher is what you'd be acquiring. And I think, like what you said, there's two things that Cincinnati really needs to work on. Relief pitching, starting pitching. I don't think this is a team that wants to go out there and put a lot of big money into guys in pitching because of how hitter-friendly this ballpark is. But I think they should look to try and trade for a couple of relief pitchers or try and add a couple of relief pitching pieces. Uh, it's certainly not going to be easy. Um, Amir Garrett is always the guy I'm interested in on that team. It's a big left-handed pitcher. I think he's going to be more of a setup guy f- with Rafael Iglesias. Uh, but they, they certainly have a lot of pitching to work with. Uh, Nitz and Zell, their top prospects. I'm looking forward to see what happens when he comes up and will it move Jose Paez all the way into the outfield officially and sort of move Eugenio Suarez to shortstop. So they're going to have to piece around what they're going to do with uh, Senzel because he's he's bound to come up within this season. The Pirates finished 82-79 and 79 in the NL Central, and it's good for, what, fourth in the division this season for the National League. It was really tight overall, but Pittsburgh... What can they do uh, to improve? They, they made a couple trades uh, during the season and trading away Garrett Cole last season. Do you see them as signers, traders? Where do we look at it? I actually see them as signers because, yes, they traded away Garrett Cole, um, but they picked up Chris Archer midseason, right, because they felt like they had a shot. So um, this can either go one or two ways. Either the Pirates can sign another pitcher to help stabilize that rotation to go along with Chris Archer, or you start trading away guys like Chris Archer, too, to, to try and restock on prospects, too. Um, I don't think the Pirates are terrible. Uh, you know, they have some prospects coming up with the middle infield that are probably going to play second and short. Um, so really, it depends on where do the Pirates see themselves as contenders in the NL Central, or are they or are they sellers? Because right now, you know the Cubs are going to be in contention. You know the Cardinals are going to compete. Uh, the Brewers are not going anywhere. So at the end of the day... If you're the Pirates, do you really want to get into a dogfight with three other teams in the division? Or is it better to start trading away some pieces? So, to me, it's either either or. Either they're going to sign somebody to help them with Chris Archer in that rotation, or they could very easily turn around and trade away Chris Archer, too. Now, they do have a lot of pieces to add. I think the middle of the infield, second and short. I'm pretty sure Josh Harrison's a free agent this season. I'm trying to He find is, him. but they do have a couple of kids in the minors. They basically have two shortstops that they're very, very high on, and they might just have one of them play second base, which is why Harrison was pretty much expendable towards the deadline. And with that, I mean, they still have a good uh, catching unit. They still have decent pitching, as you mentioned, Edwin Diaz. And they still uh, have Marte and Polanco in the outfield, too. It, relief pitching-wise, they have a top closer. I think that's always important to have. Uh, but, you know, they, they have the nice relief pitching pieces, and I like that they have that, but I don't think they have enough in the starting pitching. Uh, and so 
it's tough to see them going out and signing somebody big, but Nova, Jameson Taylon, Trevor Williams, uh, Chad Cole is going to be out for the season, most likely Tommy John surgery. Uh, they do have a couple of young prospects. I don't really see them signing somebody. I think they could maybe trade one piece or two uh, and try and strengthen a little bit more of their team. But this is a team I think you're going to see Pittsburgh again just on a standstill. For the St. Louis Cardinals, you know, they were really involved with Josh Donaldson as well. We saw Donaldson sign with the Atlanta Braves. But, I mean, they're clearly not going to be done. The Cardinals finished 88-74. and 74. They're... They truly believe they're fighting for a division. They have Matt Carpenter, which is always a great piece to have at this point. What do you think the Cardinals' biggest need is? Well, I think the <clears throat> the Cardinals really need is an impact bat. And, you know, you look at that lineup and it's so good, but they, they don't have that guy that hits three or, or, or four in the order to really drive the runs in, which is why I know I feel like I say this for every team, but Bryce Harper would be a great fit. For the Cardinals, in my opinion, um, you know, you put him right in the middle of that lineup, along with guys like Harrison Bader, who's a very good young leadoff guy, in my opinion. You know, Carpenter is in the mix as well too. I think Harper would fit nicely, and I feel like Harper is gritty enough that the Cardinal fans would appreciate his hustle. I feel like he'd appreciate how heartfelt the Cardinal fans are too. It just it feels like St. Louis is that type of city that would take in Bryce Harper with open arms, and Bryce Harper would take that city in with open arms too. Because I feel like Bryce Harper is that guy that likes to feed off the energy. And the Cardinals are that team that would give him the energy right back that he gives out every day on the field, too. Um, I think Harper would, would hit very well in that stadium as well, too. Um, but also, the Cardinals do kind of have the money. I mean, remember, this is a team that was willing to trade for Giancarlo Stanton, and Stanton's contract was nine years, 200 million dollars. So financially, Harp, that shouldn't hold them back from signing Bryce Harper. If they don't go the Bryce Harper route, I would like to see them get a pitcher because their rotation's pretty thin, too. Michael Waka is hurt on and off again. They had a lot of young rookies starting their rotation last year. Uh, Wainwright is back for one more year. You don't know what you're going to get out of him, though. Um, he was okay to end the season last year. Nathan Mikolas is pretty good. But again, you know you can't rely too much, too heavily on these young guys. Um, so for me, for the Cardinals, it's either you get a frontline starter like a Corbin or a Keigel. Or you get a Bryce Harper and really boost this lineup. As far as uh, pitching goes, I mean, relief pitching, they only have really two guys that stand out to me, which is Jordan Hitz and Luke Regerson. I think they need to consider something in the relief pitching side. That doesn't mean go out and put like $25 million into a closer per year. That just means, you know, add some small bid bullpen pieces here and there. The real thing for St. Louis is, they're going to have to figure out what they have internally. They have Dad Stefano playing center field still for a couple more years. They have to figure out what the game plan is him. What Dad Stefano are we getting this season? And also Carlos Martinez. You know, this is the ace of the team that was stuck relegated to bullpen pitching at the final part of the year because his arm just really was falling off. If these two guys are not going to... And they won 88 games last season, and Dad Stefano was terrible, and Carlos Martinez wasn't a starter. So I think if these two guys are, you know, healthy, are good, are are playing what we expect them to be, this is easily a playoff team. This is easily a great team, and it's already like you added 
two free agent pieces to your team because you're getting bat guys internally on your roster. I would love to see them add a starter, like you said, Michael Watcher, Miles Malachis, Carlos Martinez, Luke Weaver, but from then on, there's a huge drop. Having another starter might not be a bad thing because you just can take a little pressure off each of these guys and almost like a safety net, if one of them go down, it's always the possibility. Uh, so I, I think this team really should be focusing on bullpen, but certainly what they have internally is huge pieces uh, that matter. Uh, the Chicago Cubs, 95 wins, former World Series champion. Uh, few big question marks all with them as well internally, like a U Darvish to begin with. But what's a, one of their big piece needs? For the Chicago Cubs, one of their big piece needs. Um, honestly, I, I feel like the Cubs could stand still this offseason, and I'd be okay with it. I feel like a lot of things went wrong for them last year. You know, Chris Bryant wasn't fully healthy. Like you said, Udarvish got hurt eventually. But if the Cubs do have to do something, I think relief pitching is a target. Um, they're another team that doesn't have, like, a real closer either. And Jesse Chavez, who is arguably one of their best relievers, signed with Texas Rangers earlier this week. So if you're the Cubs, relief pitching probably has to be a top priority. But if you're the Cubs, you also don't have a lot of financial flexibility to go out and get a guy like Britton or Miller because you picked up Cole Hamill's $20 million option, which... They kind of needed to do because they're not going to have Darvish for the start of the year. And Cole Hamels was so good for the Cubs. It was kind of a no-brainer to bring him back. Um, so I think relief option relief options are the best move for the Cubs. The question is how pricey can they get because how much money is really left in the, in the books there. So for the Cubs, Daniel Murphy is going to be a free agent this season. With that, Ian Happ is pretty much a shoo-in to take over his position at second base. Uh it does leave a few question marks because it always seems like Chicago's got a ton of offensive hitters and just not enough positions to put them. And that's just been the case for them these last few years. You know, Javier Baez, obviously he's going to be a must-start. Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo, you still have question marks um, with other positions as well. But I look at it as their outfield is a little bit questionable for me. Yes, you have Jason Hayward, and I do like Jason Hayward. Albert Amora Jr. seems to be flourishing right now. He's also looking like a great defensive center fielder that they could use. But from there, you also have Ben Zobers, Kyle Schorber. I think you should look to try and trade one of them. Ben Zobers is a free agent after that season. I think you can ship him off to a bottom-type team that needs an extra position player and not get much for him and not ask for much to begin with. Uh, so I think that could work for them pretty well. You know, one of the things I think Chicago really needs to work on is bullpen. They they gave away, they let Wade Davis walk away to go to uh, Colorado. In return, they went and signed Brandon Morrow. I don't think Brandon Morrow and Steve uh, Shisek should be considered enough uh, for a team with 95 wins, should be considered enough for a team that won a World Series and has all these pieces around them. I think the big thing for them is bullpen at the end of the day for them to add. And lastly, the Milwaukee Brewers. You know, this team won the most games in the National League Central in the in, in the National League as well. They just missed out on getting to the World Series, losing to the Dodgers. They made a ton of moves last season. Jimmy Nelson is coming back. What does Milwaukee look to do? Honestly, 
I would say go get a starter. That was the thing I said last year. I didn't like the only move I didn't like for the Brewers that they don't have any real starting pitching. But honestly, they don't use starting pitching to begin with anyways. I would say add a reliever, but they're so good in the bullpen that it doesn't make any sense for them to add a guy like Andrew Miller or Zach Britton because the truth is they don't need it with Jeffers, um, Hayter, and and the rest of that bullpen core. That's pretty good too. Um, I will say if the Brewers need to add anything, why not a catcher? I feel like the catching there is very thin. Um, you know, Eric Kratz was very good and serviceable for what they needed him for. But I think... You know, a reunion with Jonathan Lucroy wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Um, Yasmani Grandal might be a little bit too pricey, for my opinion, for the Brewers. Um, you know, I would say go after Mustakas again, but with Mustakas being gone, I think they feel comfortable moving Shaw back to third now, um, even though Shaw did a great job of playing some second base for them in the playoffs. Um, so, yeah, I think catcher probably would be the area I would target. It's not a necessity, but I think... No offense to Eric Kratz, there are a lot of upgrades out there over um, Eric Kratz, like a Lucroy, or whether it's trading for someone like Real Muto, but I don't think Real Muto, um, I don't think they would want to pay the price for someone like that when they don't need an extra offensive piece like that, in my opinion. So someone like Lucroy along those levels would be a good fit for me to help keep coaching this pitching staff, too. Spend big money. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's what they got to do for the Brewers. You're a top team. You played like the top team. Add the top pieces to this team. Spend big money. You said catcher, go sign Yasmani Grandal. They need an ace on this team. Spend the big money to get what ace you can get. It, this is not a farm system team right now. You're not going to try and improve your farm, but what you can try and do, trade a little bit of the farm. Try and get an ace. If you can't spend the money or you don't like the money that you have, try and trade prospects away. This is a team that should be all in at this point right now because they have all the pieces around them. Jesus Aldivar was phenomenal last season. Lorenzo Kane, great signing for the team. Uh, support, love, phenomenal hitter all year long. Christian Yelich was the MVP. You have to add the right pieces around you. You already have a top bullpen. Get an ace that makes it a lot easier on the one game where it's like, what, they don't need Josh Hader to come in and throw like 40 innings for them. It's it's real simple for them. They're getting back Jimmy Nelson. That's already a great start for them. They can already add another top starter if they put out the money or they trade for him, but the Brewers have to be all in on a signing. Uh, with that, we're down to our final parts of our show. And as always, we have our Dude and Dunson of the Week and our Beard Bat. And our Beard Bat, we have three for this week. And for starters, one of them was Billy Williams winning Rookie of the Year. That was back in 1961. Uh, I kind of consider that one because I have his autograph, so why not add that one in there? Um, our next one is 1993. I can't do a much podcast without mentioning the Jacksonville Jaguars, but in 1993, the NFL announced the 30th franchise in the league, and that was the Jaguars. And lastly, in 2015, Kobe Bryant announced his intention to sadly retire at the end of the season, uh, Kobe Bryant easily one of the greatest of all time. He's in my top ten as one of the greatest of all time. Hard to debate him not being in there, uh, but 
in this day, 2015, he announced his retirement. And my dude of the week is going to be Christian McCaffrey. 17 rushes, 125 yards, one touchdown. 11 targets, 11 receptions, 112 yards, and a touchdown. In total, the guy had 11 catches, 8, 28 total touch, uh, touches for the game. 237 yards, two touchdowns, and still the Panthers couldn't get the win over the Carolina Panthers. But Christian McCaffrey is our dude of the week. And, Jose, who is our dunce of the week? Well, you said it yourself. We can't go a podcast without mentioning the Jaguars. My dunce of the week is Jalen Ramsey. You said Josh Allen was trash. Well, you got beaten by trash, as not only did they get embarrassed by the Bills, but they also decided to get into a brawl. If you're Jalen Ramsey, you're a great corner, and I'm all about the showboating and the sportsmanship sometimes. You can be confident. I have nothing against it, but you better be prepared to back it up, and you did not. Josh Allen ran all over you guys, and the Bills embarrassed him on Sunday. Jalen Ramsey, be careful what you say because it may come back to bite you. You're my dunce of the week. All right, final thoughts as well. We do that. Uh, my final thought, UCF is 11-0 and this season. They were the unanimous champions last season, uh, declaring themselves over Alabama. Uh, they're only ranked on the 8th and have no shot of getting in. Ahead of them, though, is 10-2 and Michigan. Michigan lost two games. I get it. They were the fourth best team in the country after uh, going into the Ohio State game, but they got completely wrecked by Ohio State. I still don't think the committee gives UCF enough credit that we're talking about the fact that Oklahoma – and Ohio State at 5-6 and six have a shot at getting in, assuming Georgia is going to lose to Alabama this week. UCF should be right there in it. They should have been 7th and should have been given a shot. But the fact that they're not, I think, is insulting a little bit too much to UCF on how well this team has played over the last two seasons. Uh, so that's my final thoughts. Jose, what is your final thoughts as we wrap up podcast episode 32? Well, I also agree with you on the UCF thing. I think it's a little <clears throat> it's a little silly at this point, but I think it's a silver lining because you know their QB did go down, and I feel like if UCF did make the playoffs, they'd be very hard to move forward um, without their top QB uh, in the mix. So maybe it's a silver lining that they don't make it. Um, my final thought for today is if you guys are a fan of UFC, um, there are a couple of good fight nights this weekend. They have the Ultimate Fighter finale tonight. Uh, where Rafael Dos Anjos will be taking on Usman. Um, that's going to be a good fight, and it will have welterweight title implications. And then on Saturday night from Australia, they have a really good card as well, too. And next Saturday is UFC uh, pay-per-view event, where it will be Max Holloway taking on Brian Ortega, two of the best featherweights in the UFC right now. They literally ran through the entire division. There's no one left to fight but them, but each other. Um, that's going to be a really, really exciting fight. So I'm looking forward to that. Once again, he is Jose Rivera, a.k.a. The Talking Beard. I am Nick Sarasso, and you have been listening to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, episode 32. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And it is week 13, which means it is the final week of fantasy football regular season. So all you fantasy football fans and players, good luck to all of you as the regular season wraps up and heading towards the playoffs. Again, thank you so much for listening to Saras on the Beard Podcast, episode 32.